Um, So John chapter 6 is the text for our sermon this morning. John chapter 6. And maybe some of you are wondering, when's he going to get back to Ezekiel? We have been in a sermon series on Ezekiel for a very long time, or at least it feels like a very long time, and and let me explain to you why I'm kind of taking a a break briefly. Um, Part of the reason is, is because we're about to get to a section in Ezekiel that really is its own kind of, it's it's starting a a new section with kind of some new aims in view. And so rather than start that, get that going this morning, and then not being able to continue it next Sunday, because we'll have a guest preacher next Sunday, um, um, so you should be very excited about that. I mean, I, all of you just felt the sense of relief wash over you, I know. Um, but, uh, uh, and so, so because of that, because I didn't want to get started and then not be able to continue to move through with it because the next chapter is very long in Ezekiel, and it's got a lot of different parts to it and some things I even want to kind of prep us as a body for before we go into it because um, it's, uh, it's a difficult text to preach. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, and so, so rather than have less time for that in the mix of all that's been happening in the last two weeks, I wanted to give more time for it. So I decided to preach to you from John 6. And so let's go there together. It's also going to be up here on the screen for you. So the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus is talking to a group of people about a number of different things. It's a really fascinating section in the book of John just before the what we call the high priestly prayer. And it features the I am statements of Jesus. So I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine and so on. And now in, um, oh, sorry, I'm, in, I'm thinking 16. Man, I'm way ahead. Six is where we are. Apologies. Um, I am the bread of life is the claim that Jesus makes here. And so what exactly does it mean? What exactly does that claim mean from Jesus? I am the bread of life. That's what we're going to seek to unpack this morning. And so if you'll begin with me then in verse, um, well, we start in 25 in the bulletin. I'm going to start in 22. So sorry to do that to you, Burley. So I'm going to read 22. When we get to 24, that'll, that'll pick up. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that Jesus had been only, uh, there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats. They went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. And gives life to the world. 
They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this statement from Jesus, that he is the bread of life, it is, I think, a bit difficult for us to grasp immediately for a few reasons. Uh, Most of those reasons having to do with distance from the culture in which they were spoken. In that culture and at that time, there were uh, what we would call food staples, things that if you lived in that era, you ate probably every day or almost every day. And that's unfamiliar to us because we have a whole lot of options, right? You can go to the grocery store and be absolutely driven wild for a very long time with endless options for your lunch. The only creatures who eat the same thing every day in our homes are our pets. But in first century Israel, you probably ate bread or fish just about every day. Not to say you never ate anything else, but you could count on eating that quite a lot of the time. Okay, so that's the first thing I want you to just kind of keep in front of your, of, of your mind. That this, this saying, I'm the bread of life, was not just selecting one item of food among many perhaps options to choose from, but this was one of the everyday staples. Second, people in Jesus' culture in the first century didn't live to eat, they ate to live. Another way to put it is that they didn't really have snacks. Can you imagine? Because for many of them, 85, about 85% of their income was spent on food. 85%. And so you can sort of understand why when Jesus feeds the 5,000, which happened earlier in John's gospel, uh, earlier in uh, chapter 6, at the start of chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 at the start of chapter 6. Well, that's really something. This man can multiply our bread. Presumably our fish. He's the answer to 85% of our income woes. In fact, that's why they come after him. That's why they continue to follow after him. Jesus knows that, and he tells them that he knows that. We can go there to verse 24. The crowd saw that Jesus was not there where they were looking for him. They got into boats, went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25, please. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, when did you come here? So they were looking for him, found him. And then verse 26, he says, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. All right. And then he tells them where they've gone wrong. Verse 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. And perhaps now, now that you have that statement set against the background of that cultural moment, you can understand why they might have balked just a bit at that, been kind of stunned that he said that, because think about what he's saying. Sure, food might perish, so so seek not after the food that perishes. Well, okay, uh, Jesus, the food might perish, The bread might get moldy and nasty and gross, but when it's good, it keeps me from perishing, right? So the food might perish, but when I eat it, it keeps me from perishing. That's pretty important. That's actually part of Jesus' point, though. 
Most of you know that uh, Marissa and I just finished moving all that we own, either into storage or into our new home. And I figure most of you have moved before, so you know what it's like. You discover that you have a lot more than you thought you did, and then you clean all the corners and places in the old house, and you discover dust and other creatures of the darkness that you knew not of. And you clean out your refrigerator. And that is when you discover the food that perishes. Yesterday, I felt guilty sending food into the disposal that was, frankly, too old to be baptized as a child of the covenant. (laughs) And Jesus is here talking about the reality of food that doesn't perish. The reality. Now, he also begins with the reality of food that perishes. It spoils, yeah? But he's also talking about another reality. So so food that perishes can be understood two ways. In, In Greek or in English, food that perishes is the kind of food that spoils or the kind of food that is dead. The food that perishes. The food that has perished. And so when you sit down to lunch this afternoon, after the service finishes at about 1.30, just kidding, what are you going to eat? Cheeseburger, maybe? That's perhaps the closest thing America has to a staple food. And, and when, that, when you eat that cheeseburger, it's going to be dead food. Maybe you haven't thought about it that way. But it, it's, it's perished food. It's, you're eating dead cow and dead lettuce and dead tomato and dead wheat. Your food then has to perish before it can spoil. <laughs> and so this brings us to this principle This reality holds true in both the physical realm and what I'm going to show you from the text, the spiritual realm as well, that in order for you to live, something has to die. In order for you to live, something has to die. And here Jesus is telling hungry people, I am the bread of life. What's he talking about? Well, if there's bread of life and it's spiritual bread, which you can get from the text, I'm going to start with the assumption that that means that we are spiritually hungry. Jesus, in other places, speaks of the poor in spirit or the the hungry in spirit, if you want to put it that way. When I was about 16 or 17, I went on a retreat weekend, and someone came to my table at the start of this retreat weekend for for high school students and offered to bring me something to eat. And so I said, well, what do you have? And they said, well, what do you want? I I didn't understand. They said, really, just, just tell us what you want. So I assembled some manner of pathetically unhealthy list of deadly consumables that kind of, you know, chips and candy and soda and Cheetos and all that. And to my shock and amazement, they brought it out just as I had asked for it. And as I enjoyed my plate of, you know, Doritos and Fritos and Cheetos and other things ending in O's, I thought, man, this is, this is the life. This is so nice, Right? And I don't wonder if these men talking to Jesus experienced something like that when he started handing out bread and fish like it was nothing and it just kept coming. They must have thought, well, this is it. This is the life. We are, we are completely and utterly taken care of. Jesus knows that we are chasing after the hope and the desire that we would be able to say those words. That by our circumstances, we'd say, well, this is the life. 
Like, I've, I've got it. I've, I've arrived. I'm, I have all I want, all I need. And that's not just the satisfaction of physical hunger, you see. You and I chase after our concept of ultimate life. The, whatever you think makes life worth living. The life that's full of joy and contentment and rest and luxury and vacations and energy and love and food and whatever else. Chasing after the ultimate life that we really want. And this, that, that impulse in your heart and mind to pursue that to pursue that good life however we define it, it gets us a bit closer to what Jesus means when He says, I'm the bread of life. Because that's what He's offering. Not the satisfaction of the stomach in the moment, but actual, the, the actual life that your heart and soul cries out for and that, that that desire shapes all of your thinking and wanting and doing. And for 16, 17-year-old Brian Rhodes... That was the, the concoction of processed chips and, and salt and, and caffeinated sugar. And we, we laugh at that, perhaps, but I, I don't wonder if God laughs at our pathetic definitions of what the good life is. There's a bit from, from C.S. Lewis where he's, he's reflecting on human desires and he says our desires aren't too strong, really, for God to handle. They're actually too weak. We, we fool about with, with, he says, with, with drink and with food and with sex and with money, when what's offered to us is infinite joy that we can't grasp. It's like, a, it's like a child who's playing with mud pies in the slums, and he doesn't even understand what you mean when you offer him a vacation at the beach, Lewis says. And we have this impulse in our heart that yearns for joy, yearns to be filled. And Jesus says, unless you eat the bread that I give you, it's going to spoil. It's going to perish, and so will you. And so that's why Jesus goes to the cross. Because in order for you to live, something must die. The problem is when we hear the promise of life, you and I are kind of uh, trigger-loaded in our spirits, if I can put it that way, to search for the program. Okay, so you've just told me, Pastor, that what's on offer here is what my soul is pursuing. So what's the program? Okay, what's the seven-step process to get there? I think something like that is actually what we see next. Let me direct you uh, back to your text. Verse 28, And they said to him, What must we do? Right? So that's, that's, there's the question. What do we have to do? To be doing the works of God. Right? That's what you want us to do. <laughs> if we're honest, we really just want the bread okay? that, that you handed out earlier. So, so just tell us what we got to do. Tell us what the process is. Tell us what the work is. Tell us what the, uh, the, the task is. And what does Jesus say? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Right? What, what do we have to do to get this? And Jesus says, here's the work, believe, which is not really a work at all. Now, we, this is where we struggle, because in our flesh, we don't believe that belief is enough. This is our, one of our most fundamental problems. We want a program. We want a work. We want a task. We want a step-by-step process that we can satisfy. 
Martin Luther calls this the opinio legis, the, the opinion of the law. It's like this little voice in your head that wants to take every gift of God and turn it into something you have to earn or be good enough to receive. And the real trick of it is it feels like humility. Right? Oh man, I'm going to work so hard to be enough. Right? It, 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 it sounds like humility to our ears, but it's not. It's pride. It's actually pride. Because if it is something you can accomplish, then when you're done accomplishing it, God has to leave you alone. And some people approach even faith that way. Right? I did the thing. I, I, I prayed the prayer. I, I, I joined the church. Right? That's the work. What's the work we have to do? And then you wonder why your spirit is starving. So what do you have to do to get it? That's always our question then. Something's wrong with my life. So, right? I'm, I'm unhappy. So I must have failed to read the right book. Failed to do the right diet plan. Failed to apply the right set of skills. Failed to take the right sort of meds. I've got to earn this, man. Now what is interesting to me about that is that we have this impulse in our spirit that knows that there's something out there that will actually do the trick and satisfy us. Right? We're, we're chasing after it. So we seem to be convinced before, before we start that there's something out there that will actually do it. That's why you chase things in this life that you believe will satisfy you. Because you believe there's a something out there that's actually going to satisfy you. Some authentic reality that is going to deliver to you what it promises, real life. And what does Jesus say to them? Go back to, um, can we jump back to verse 27, please? What does Jesus say to them? He tells them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. You may have noticed I jumped over that earlier. What does that mean? Set His seal, right? Jesus says, the one whom the Father has sent, I'm, I'm, I'm He. I am the one on whom the Father has set His seal. And this is, this is language, uh, I think of a king imprinting his signet onto something. The idea is he's saying, yes, remember what I just said a moment ago, you, have this, you know that there is something out there that will satisfy, and Jesus says, I am the genuine article. I'm the one you've been looking for. This is the work, which is not a work at all. It's not a program. It's an invitation. Come and welcome and believe in Jesus Christ and know Him and be known by Him and He will give you rest from this restless hunger that consumes you because He's already been consumed and broken and crushed like bread. If you've ever made bread, <laughs> no. He has in Himself the life you were made for. His death gives you life because in order for you to live, something must die. But our hunger is persistent. This, this desire to know what work can I perform, it, it seems like an odd question to ask given the evidence. But what they're actually doing in part is comparing Jesus to Moses. If we'll go then to verse 30. So they said to him, this is after he says, believe in the one whom God has sent. They said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they reference this Old Testament moment. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread 
from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And sir, they said, give us this bread always. Now, so it seems like an odd question to ask at first. What, what sign do you perform so that we can know you're legitimate? But what they're, what they're saying is, you know what? Jesus, we know our history, and Moses gave us food in the wilderness. That's what the Israelites wanted. And if you haven't noticed, that's what we're asking for. (laughs) Moses gave them food when the Israelites asked, here are Israelites before you. Where's the food? It's a good reminder that our flesh is persistent in misunderstanding the simplicity of what God offers us. God gives us prayer. And we say, oh, finally, a great way to get everything I want. (laughs) Okay. God gives us His Word. And sometimes we carefully search it to isolate the places that say things we already agree with. God gives us blessings and gifts and we hoard them. And we're so slow to give to our neighbors. God gives us a church and a community and a congregation. And we try to build rumor mills next door. Lord have mercy. Moses did stuff for us. What are you going to do for us? What are you going to give us? And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So the thing I have to give you is myself. That is the bread for their hunger. See, in, the, in these verses, Jesus makes these connections clear for His listeners. And the way our world works, by the way, so when Jesus talks about this distinction between the bread that doesn't satisfy and the bread that he gives. I want you to step with me for a moment again into some of the assumptions in that first century culture. For, for Greeks in the first century, the Greeks would say that you find out the meaning of life through contemplation. Okay? You use your brain. It's why a lot of Western religion is highly intellectual. Okay? And Presbyterianism is no exception. But highly intellectual, highly philosophical, highly contemplative. Eastern religion tends to be kind of the opposite. Eastern religion tends to be more about the emotion and the experience. So Eastern mysticism, for example, it's not so much about the ideas and your intellect. It's about your internal experiences. And when you understand that contrast, you begin to see why Christianity is really weird. Because one thing that Christianity does well, that neither the Western contemplatives nor the Eastern mystics do well, is they invite in children. Let the little children come to me, for to such as them belongs the kingdom of heaven. And you have to become like a little child, as it were. Not childish in your thinking, but childish in your trusting Why? Well, a a child doesn't have the mental acuity to be a scholar. A child doesn't have the self-consciousness to be a mystic. But you know what a child can do? A child can meet a person. That's what makes Christianity different. It is not an intellectual exercise. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. It's not an emotional experience. This This is the bread of life who is a person. And his name is Jesus. Now, to be sure, 
Plenty have tried to turn Christianity into an intellectual exercise or into an emotional experience. That's because Christianity is deep enough to puzzle the most brilliant scholar and powerful enough to move us in the deepest parts of our being. But rather than give, thank you, but rather than give us an intellectual exercise to complete or an emotional experience to achieve, Jesus says, What's the work? To believe. To believe that in order for you to live, something must die. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So how do you get this? How do you receive this bread of life? Well, you receive it. You believe it. It really is that easy. You realize that in order for me to live, something must die. And Jesus Christ has died to cleanse me of my sins, to forgive me of my sins so that I will never ever actually die is there any message we need more right now than you won't die because what we've done in our sin we've essentially we've essentially tried to hijack our lives we've lived as though our lives belong to us and they don't when we try to live as though they belong to us we wreck everything To that world then, Jesus comes and takes our punishment. Which gives me a good excuse to talk about this. If if you've ever wondered why during the Lord's Supper I, I hold up this bit of bread and actually break it. It's it's not it's not for like performance theater, right? Imagine Jesus at the Last Supper. Because what he does is not what I would have wanted to do. I would have, <laughs> would have wanted to find like a, a really impressive statue of like a Greek god and been like, this is my body, <laughs> right? Big and strong and immovable, right? Instead, what Jesus does is he picks up a piece of bread and he breaks it in half and he says, this is my body. So this is what's about to happen to my body. And then he takes the wine and he pours it. So where where does your blood go? Well, it goes inside your body. Jesus pours the wine and says, this is my blood. It's going to fall out of me. That's why why the visual element of the Lord's Supper is something that we practice here. Because that's that's part of what Jesus is communicating. He's saying, if you're looking for my body, it's the broken one. If you want to understand my blood and its purpose, it's to be poured out. Right? And so this is what Jesus has given us then. He's the bread that was broken when we should have been the ones that were broken. His pain becomes our peace. His blood becomes our healing. He was crushed like powder, like, like wheat is crushed to make bread. Why? Because in order for you to live, something must die. So he was broken so that you could be made whole. You see, if, if you come to Jesus saying, I'm hurting, so just make me feel better, that's not going to work. You've got the wrong God. <laughs> I'm sad, so just make me feel happy. You are trying to make your own bread. Using God to get there, perhaps. Instead, Christians confess, Lord, I know and I see that I'm a rebel and I should have been broken. But you were instead. That's when you taste the bread of heaven broken for you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.
Our Father, we confess our need that we are slow of heart to believe. And so we pray and ask that you would open our eyes to see Jesus, that we might taste and see that he is good, taste and see the living bread broken for us. We ask it in his name.